You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Award-winning directors Sebastian Junger and Nick Questit joined the Washington Post to discuss their new documentary, Blood on the Wall, which explores the current migration crisis in Mexico. Let's listen. Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ishan Darur, a foreign affairs columnist here at the Washington Post and author of Today's Worldview, the Post's international affairs newsletter. I'm delighted to be here this morning in conversation with two critically acclaimed award-winning filmmakers, Sebastian Younger and Nick Quested, and we'll be talking about their new documentary, Blood on the Wall, which debuts September 30th, 9 p.m. Eastern on Nat Geo. Sebastian and Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. I just wanted to start, let's let's start with both of you talking a bit about the genesis of this project. This is a documentary that covers a number of very weighty themes and issues from migration to the emergence of the drug cartels to the U.S. legacy in Central America. What was the uh, original story that you wanted to tell and and did that evolve in the process of making this documentary? Uh, Sebastian, let's start with you. Well, Nick and I have a, a long history of, of making films together, starting with Restrepo. Um, we made a film about the civil war in Syria, and that sort of got us into thinking about pe- parts of the world that are troubled and that are struggling. And um, Mexico, America, you know, America's neighbors seemed sort of at the top of that list. Um, and so we, we decided to tackle, you know, Syria isn't necessarily something that's foremost in Americans' minds. Mexico definitely is. So any conversation about it potentially is politically charged. And what we wanted to do as good journalists, what we wanted to do was sort of take out the politics and the emotions, um, some would say the xenophobia, from, from the conversation and actually talk about the problem and how it works and how it might be solved. So that was sort of the, the philosophical genesis for tackling this project. Nick, you were on the ground in Mexico. How did you go about choosing the subjects that we encounter in the, in the film? Well, um, we wanted to use um, migration as uh, one of the themes from the very beginning, but um, the caravan, we didn't know about the caravan. So we were actually in the highlands of Chiapas when we heard about the caravan. And we packed our bags and managed to get to the border of Guatemala a day before the caravan turned up. Um, and then um, we had been having some conversations with other families, like in our film, there's two p- particular characters that we follow. One is Sara and Sharo. They were already in an albergue in Tapachula in southern Mexico. But we met Ludi um, uh, as we were crossing the river and she was um, swimming with her friends because it was uh, hot. And we just struck up a conversation and uh it sort of went from there we i had a um i used to make a lot of music videos so hip-hop music videos and as you can see in the film ludi um is a fanatic for you know hip-hop so we had a relationship at that point and we just continued on i want to revisit the ludi as a character because she's a really intriguing figure in the film but but there's another dimension to this which is you were filming very uh, in in great proximity with uh, the Sinaloa cartel in northern Mexico, and you have incredible footage, really unbelievable access uh, with this cartel in making the documentary. Uh, you're 
you're with actual drug smugglers, you're chronicling actual drug smuggling. Um, let's play a clip from a scene uh, that shows this, and then let's talk about it a bit more. Uh, let's watch. Yo no me gusta hacer este trabajo, no, porque prefiero ser un doctor o licenciado o etcétera, ¿me entiendes? Pero yo yo ocupo comer y desafortunadamente me tocó hacer esto. No, there's no way out. Especially if you're one of the ones that take out the most drugs. You're valuable. You ain't gonna leave like that. You gotta make me money. So there's a lot to unpack in that. Uh, these are people who work for a dangerous criminal organization. These are people who have ostensibly killed other people. Uh, of course, uh, you two are no strangers to war zones, to, to chronicling militancy and the dangers around these kind of, around conflicts. But what was it like, A, getting access? How did you get this access to them? And, and then getting them to go on camera in the way that they did. Um, well, it was a, it, it took quite a while. The shoot was broken up into three distinct sections. The first section was the caravan. The second section was our shoot in Acapulco. And the third section was the, um, uh, the Cartel de Sinaloa in Culiacan, in the mountains of the Sierra Madre in Badoahuato. And then on the border, uh, near Mexicali and Tijuana. And so it was a long process to create confidence. I had basically our whole crew was Mexican because we felt it was the most appropriate way was to, was to, was to work with Mexicans to, to tell their story about their own country. So one of my local producers was Miguel Angel Vega and Miguel is works for a newspaper in, in Culiacán called Rio Doce, uh, the 12 rivers. There's 12 rivers that converge in Culiacán. And um, uh, he's, he's very well respected. He's, uh, uh, he has an impeccable uh, track record. And we basically, um, we were looking uh, for the right connection in the mountains and we were talking to a narco corrido, like, because we thought that maybe they're, a narco corrido is like a gangster mariachi. They're like, um, they sing songs about uh, narcos and, um, and even narcos commission them to write these songs. And we were just chatting with them because it's part of the culture. And we were like, but you know, we want to go to the mountains really and, and meet the people who really are uh, at the heart of this. And he goes, well, why didn't you tell me before? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I was the elementary school in um, La Tuna and La Palma, the village of El Chapo and Arturo Beltran. So that's how we made our connection with the guys that we went with. And in terms of them then agreeing to be on camera to show you their, their work, their production facilities, uh, what was in it for them in, in your mind? I mean, why were they doing this and why did they agree to go along with it? Well, I, so to build trust, I showed them uh, the previous film we'd made, which was about the war in Syria and Iraq, and we'd been embedded with various militias there. And, um, you know, we sort of have a, a, a mantra of 
um, trying to present uh, events and facts in as apolitical way as possible. So um, they appreciated that. And you've got to realize that they live in a hyper-violent world and there's no existential crisis for a narco. They live in the moment. They run as fast as they can to make as much money as they can, knowing that they're going to go to jail or be killed. Right? They they understand this. This is the this is the I don't know if we're gonna if I'm gonna take you back to my French literature days. They've accepted this absurd wager, and this is how they're going to live their life. And um, you know, like for instance, their diet is is delicious, but there are no salads for narcos. They eat fried chicken and and grilled meat and fried chicken and grilled meat and fried chicken and grilled meat. And then there might be some um, um, uh, ceviche, but there's no salad. There's no green vegetables because they don't need to eat green vegetables. They're not planning on being 50 years old. And so they wanted to show how they lived their life. They they believe they li they live by this code. They they believe that they're honorable criminals. And as far as my interaction with them was, was if they said they did it, they would do it, they did it. I never felt in jeopardy at one moment while I was in Mexico. I was their guest and they wanted to show us how they lived and the way they lived. Sebastian, if I can turn to you, the question of politics I think is also very important. In this film, we see uh, various clips of President Trump uh, demonizing uh, migrants, warning of the threat of these cartels. You're filming this around 2018, I'm assuming. How much did the weight and and uh, sort of intensity of the American news cycle and political conversation, how much pressure did that put to bring to bear on the way you conceived of this project and executed this project? Um. I think quite a lot. I, I mean, my father was a two-time war refugee uh, from Europe um, and an immigrant to this country. He married an American woman. And, you know, on some level, I, I took sort of personal umbrage at some of the president's words. Um, but I'm a good journalist, and I, and I feel that as soon as you offer your personal opinion, you've just undermined your own argument. The best way to um, mount an argument, and hopefully your argument is actually an exercise in rationality. The best way to mount an argument is to simply show the facts and to simply quote people um, on both sides of the debate. And so I felt that we could be absolutely in keeping with a very rigorous journalist standard um, and also come out with a film that had a, uh, I, I don't want to use the word message, but a, a content to it that was in keeping with my personal beliefs. I felt like they, those were not uh, contradictory goals at all. And, uh, and I think that's what we've done. So I can assume that part of those personal beliefs is this desire to humanize uh, these people in this migrant caravan that snaked its way from Central America through Mexico to the American border. Um, talk a bit about, I mean, maybe this is for you, Nick, uh, you handed a camera, right? Or you 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 enabled some of these migrants in this caravan to film themselves, uh, yeah. and and you use that footage quite extensively in the film. What was that process like? Can you talk a bit about that approach to this documentary? 
Um, well, that's been a technique that we've used um, extensively. I think that handing cameras to your subjects and the people around them enables you to get a much purer documentary sense. Like, I'm a big dude. And when I stood on the bridge um, with the caravan, I stand head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, so, and that, and when I pull out a big camera, people's behavior changes. Even if it's a little bit, people sit up straight, they stop picking their nose, whatever they're doing, they, um, they're a little, they're attentive to the fact that I'm there. But if someone picks up a cell phone and starts filming, you know, people's behavior doesn't necessarily change as much. So it's a much, you're much closer and more intimate uh, in the way you're shooting. And um, so we gave Sauder and Shara, we actually followed five families and we distilled it down to Ludi and her um, crew and uh, Sauder and Shara. And um, we give them a little instruction like how to hold the camera, but not very much. And, um, you know, it just shows you just need to have a camera in the right place at the right time. That's, and Ludi would keep coming back with these little gems of her experience that we couldn't have possibly hoped to have got. We can't be there every moment of the day. And then we change their experience as we're there because, all right, so maybe they're not going to be um, hassled by the police if we're there, or we're going to deal with the police because or the narcos or whatever, um, it becomes, a, I think, a, a closer representation to the reality of, her, of their experience um, by using these cameras this way. Absolutely. There, there is this degree of intimacy that we feel and, and, and really are, are given by, by this technique. Uh, and, and Ludi is such a powerful, moving figure in this. Um, there are moments um, featuring her where she doesn't come across, uh, I mean, I'm curious about how you choose how to depict her because there are moments where she's doing drugs and, and there are moments where she's in this kind of rather uh, bleak limbo. Did you feel a certain kind of responsibility in terms of leaving certain things out about her experience on the trail? I mean, how did you handle her as a subject? Well, she actually shot the footage of her um, taking the drugs and gave it to us, as she did shoot the footage of her um, begging for money um, and food. So um, we discussed this uh, a lot, but we felt this was her journey. Her journey was one of it started so hopeful and so powerful and the caravan together was like, was like water that they tried to stop the caravan. Um, they, uh, they, the, the Mexican uh, uh, federal police stopped and the army, no, just the federal police stopped them on the bridge, but the water, uh, they're like water, the caravan flowed round and it kept pushing north and it was received so, um, well by the people of southern Mexico. They were cooking them food, rice and beans, boiled eggs, and handing it to the caravan as they came past. And the towns would set up a impromptu um, uh, kitchen to feed, you know, you're talking feeding 8,000 people. That's a lot of people to feed and, um, and, and, and get water to and sanitation. But as you got further north, especially once you got to Puebla, 
the atmosphere changed enormously and they weren't received hospitably from that point on and they were received professionally in in Mexico City but from Guadalajara to the border they were bus straight through 30 hour bus rides some people took with no water no sanitation and um, they were basically dumped at the border so you could see how the the journey of the caravan and the pressure was being put on the caravan because once they got to the border they were again vilified and um, by the executive branch of the government who continued to um, uh, disparage them and, and, and put a lot of pressure on them at the, at the point they were the most vulnerable. Because if you're a migrant in northern Mexico, your remittances are being cut off, your options are, your options are narrowing at this point. And that's what happened to Ludi. So Ludi's journey is a mirror of the caravan's experience. We have a, a clip to actually show of Ludi and her her teenage friends in Mexico, and it's a rather uh, bleak situation at times. Let's show that clip. Yo no tenía planeado venir. Cuando me cuando me di cuenta que la caravana venía, yo me quedé pensando y digo, no tengo no tengo familia aquí, no tengo donde donde trabajar, no tengo donde dormir. Entonces yo también me voy. Tal vez allá cambia mi vida. so in in that clip we saw uh, these people on this caravan uh, really tidily encapsulating what's motivating their journey the sense of threat and danger the sense of despair with the politics in their country how, Sebastian, how important a message is this to get across? Do you think we fully understand it? And do you think this is a film where that's the kind of core theme you want to be putting, putting forward? You know, I think for all of journalism, um, one of the core missions is to humanize people that are in another population. Um, that process of humanizing is the only way that you can a, a nation can come up with a um, a wise and a compassionate set of laws. Um, I've been researching uh, war crimes law. It's rooted in something called natural law. And natural law holds that all humans are God's creation. And so you cannot deprive them of their basic uh, rights and dignity. The way around that problem, uh, and it is a problem for autocratic and despotic regimes, the way around that problem is to say that other people actually are not human. So then you can do whatever you want. And I think one of the one of the uh, points of journalism is to actually show the humanity of, of all people. And that way, the United States and other nations can come up with a set of laws that both protect their interests, which is very important, but also attempt to take care of other people's basic needs. So um, in, showing the, in showing the reality of the migrants, and for that matter, the, the reality of the narcos, 
Uh, I think one of the things we wanted to do was to show people in America, look, these are people. I mean, they're people in very troubled circumstances. We got to figure this out. But they are people exactly like you and me. And, and of course, uh, Ludi's journey uh, ends at the border in Tijuana. Uh, and have you, have either of you remained in touch with her? Do you know where she is now? Yeah, and, uh, Ludi is uh, back in Honduras. She's staying with her aunt outside San Pedro Sula in the countryside. Saura and Shaurol are in New Jersey awaiting their asylum hearing. I, I guess this is a question to Sebastian and you, Nick. Uh, in Restrepo, this, you know, your award-winning uh, debut, uh, you chronicle a series of men, this, this very intimate portrait of a platoon in Afghanistan, uh, and these are soldiers, and you really sort of live with them, you, you paint an incredibly intimate picture of their lives. Was there a difference in stitching together a story of families, of women, uh, in most cases, uh, was that a different kind of project? We, it, it's sort of funny that th this film is sort of the inverse of Restrepo. In Restrepo, I was on the grounds uh, with Tim Etherington and, and Nick was not. Um, in this Mexico film, I was not on the ground in Mexico at all and, and Nick was. So um, for me, shooting Restrepo, um, the, the relations between young men and a combat outpost are extremely simple. And they, they have... Uh, um, very, very, very close bonds. They have a completely united set of objectives. Uh, they all need each other to survive. And that makes life pretty simple. And in some ways, there's not a lot to figure out. Um, when you broaden human society to children and families, um, it gets extremely complicated and people don't necessarily have the same set of interests, even within one group. And so, you know, Nick navigating, I mean, I'll toss it, I'll hand it off to him now, but Nick navigating that, I think must have been um, vastly harder than what I had to navigate personally and as a and as a filmmaker out at Restrepo. Nick? Um, well, yeah, I mean, when you look at Restrepo, Strepo, Restrepo is a microcosm and an examination of, of personal relationships. We're using our microcosms as, a, a, you know, as a metaphor for experience of something bigger. And so we were contrasting the experience of the uh, caravan or of, of time with the Cartel de Sinaloa with the political and social history of Mexico, because in the end, you can't separate the politics of Mexico from uh, the politics of narcotics, and you can't separate the politics of migration from American foreign policy or the policy of, of narcotics, because they all have led to this push factor of, of migration. So whatever, if it's America supporting corrupt regimes in Honduras or Guatemala or in El Salvador, um, all that, that legacy of, of, of 40 years of interference and um, the undermining of any type of government that, um, uh, that was, you know, to the right of, Re to the left of Reagan, um, uh, has led to you know you know this this issue of mass migration that we're facing today. This is a, a a huge oversimplification, but one of the culprits or villains of the piece, and please please correct my language if I'm wrong about this, is former Mexican President Felipe Calderon, who uh, a decade and a half ago launched this infamous war on the cartels 
that um, it seems in the documentary you portray as having disastrous consequences. And one of those disastrous approaches was that they uh, tackled the, they took out the top bosses as opposed to the underlying networks below the cartels. Could you talk a bit about, um, I mean, the importance of that, that moment and uh, of the, the consequences of, I mean, the way you frame this as these cartels existed, they had uh, uh, some kind of understandings with, with, with each other, but then once this war was unleashed and violence intensified, things completely unraveled. Okay. Maybe that's a question, Sebastian, first. Yeah, so um, when you cut the head off the cartel, you're, you're actually probably taking the best manager away. And the manager had a relationship with the government at a federal level. Um, once they were away, um, you, you basically start a power grab between the, um, the colonels and lieutenants. And that leads to bloodshed and, and mayhem. And then the other problem that you have is if you deny people, if you deny the narcos access to the international market, they then, once you're on the wrong side of the law, you're on the wrong side of the law. So there's very little, how would you reintegrate these soldiers back into society? So these soldiers stay on the margins of society. And instead of being able to sell drugs to the Americans, they became parasitic on their own communities. And so they start taxing their own communities, whether it be the taxi drivers or the fishmonger or the shop or the. And it becomes a, a slow spiral into chaos at that point. Sebastian, you know, one of the takeaways from this, at least one of the inferences that I got from watching this was that we have a pretty strong argument here, both for greater gun control in the US to control the flows going back to Mexico and further south, as well as uh, an argument about uh, certain kinds of drug legalization in the US too, because as you point out in the documentary, there is one of the original causes for the instability and these networks that we see is the huge demand in America for drugs. I, I, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an expert, but I'm guessing that if the the um, weapons laws were simply enforced, uh, you would cut down on the flow of weapons to Mexico, although I might be wrong and Nick can check that. Um, as for legalizing drugs, I mean, with any, like with healthcare or any complicated national policy, there's upsides and downsides. And, and um, I've heard that that wouldn't necessarily disrupt the, um, the problems in Mexico, the drug, drug supply in Mexico, what what is at the heart of all this, and what we haven't mentioned yet, is corruption. Uh, my my good friend Sarah Shays, um, former journalist who lived in Afghanistan for a long time, has lived all over the world, has studied the effect of corruption on society. And Mexico is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, corruption is the common element to um, violence, environmental degradation, um, illegal activity. Um, ex, uh, religious extremism. I mean, if you want to find one thing, one thing that's at the heart of most of the troubled countries in the world, it's endemic corruption. As soon as people stop believing in the system, uh, they start fending them for themselves, and then everything falls apart. And the uh, um, the radical Islamic movements around the world, um, like the Taliban, um, like ISIS, 
they come into power by saying, we will end the corruption of your corrupt government. Just let us take over and we will stop corruption. And that's often why the populace lets them in. Mexico, if it until it tackles its corruption prob problem and until America tackles its corruption problem, um, you will always see drugs and see problems uh, coming from that area. You show, and this is perhaps our last question, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, you, you show the rise of Andres uh, Manuel López Obrador, the populist uh, left-wing or left-leaning uh, Mexican president in the film. What we don't see, of course, are events that have followed since the coronavirus pandemic um, and questions over uh, AMLO, as he's known, his own ability to crack down on this corruption you're talking about. What sort of, I mean, I, I guess as a closing question, um, what kind of future are we seeing in the documentary and and how do the, the the events that we don't see in the documentary, the coronavirus pandemic, and now this election campaign here in the US, uh, what are some of the ways in which that's putting pressure on these issues of migration and the cartels? Well, uh, just to address the pandemic, the pandemic has put a, uh, has reduced the demand for migration because no one wants to leave their home uh, with the possibility of becoming sick, uh, they're already very vulnerable. So there's been a slow um, downtick in, in, in the net migration north. But um, in terms of the future, I, you know, yeah, and you talk about AMLO being um, left-leaning, I think he's left-speaking. I think he just, his populist message is, was, was left-speaking, but not really left-leaning He's not taken any action in that way. He's 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 looking at spending enormous amounts of money on uh, the uh, Trenas Cheka, um, and he's uh, tried to um, create some type of compromise with the with the cartels. But how are you going to? Which is probably, in terms of person, you know, public security, the best thing to do because how are you going to reintegrate, you know, five hundred thousand, a million? narco soldiers back into society how are you going to you know it's all a gradual process prohibition has created this monster in the same way it created al capone and and joseph kennedy and the bronfman's so how are you going to unwind that it's a gradual process you can start with the you know the legalization of of cannabis and you've seen that the mexican cartels are no longer interested in smuggling marijuana because it has a huge, a horrible weight to value ratio. There, this is all economics now. You know, if there's no incentive to move drugs, they won't do it. They will find something else to do. They'll ship um, freezers or, or blue jeans or chili peppers. What, if there's an arbitrage opportunity because of a border, they will find a way to exploit it, whether it's people, whether it's drugs. So it's just a matter of like, Maybe um, it's not prohibition, but it's if it, it, you don't, it's not the repealing of prohibition just like that. It's the let's legalize certain things, tax it, and use that money to treat people rather than to build this huge metaphorical barrier uh, across across the southern border, which is an artificial border because it only exists since the Mexican-American War, which has been forgotten in America, and they say in Mexico, we will never forget. So um, 
you know, how, how, how do you uh, deal with this? It all has to be little gradual things. But as Sebastian says, if you can't deal with the corruption and um, the rule of law, then you, you're never going to make any sizable change or any meaningful change. Well, I think on that note, and this is a conversation we could have for another half an hour, another hour, but unfortunately we are out of time. Uh, uh, Nick and Sebastian, uh, congratulations again on the documentary and thank you so much for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.